Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. This is Katie Mead and... Luke Boyd, welcome to the program. Hello. We have a very exciting episode ready for y'all. Indeed we do. Um, so we've, we've talked a little bit here and there about doing an episode on the Salem Witch Trials. But to be perfectly honest, like I wasn't really all that excited about doing one because I feel like it's such a known story. It's mm -hmm. kind of been done to death. People with far better credentials than Luke or I <laughs> have covered it beautifully in the podcasting world. So, you know, we thought we'd do it a little bit differently. And the inspiration came from a little field trip we had, Lukey. Where did yeah. we go? <laughs> we went, we took a nice day out this past weekend to the New York Historical Society to check out their exhibit. That's a temporary traveling exhibit um, called the Salem Witch Trials Reckoning and Reclaiming. And so we thought, what a cool thing. We could check out the exhibit and then talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Like and here museum people. <laughs> exactly. And this is like, it was such a dumb moment for us. Like, oh my God, because it's like closing. It's I know. It's, it's We're so be sorry, everyone. <laughs> the exhibit will be closed by the time this opens, which maybe gives it value. <laughs> but also we've been through October. Yes. And we were like, we're going to do all the spooky stuff in October. And of course, yeah. Salem, Salem came up. But like you were saying, it's it's been burnt over. Uh, yes. <laughs> burnt at the stake over. Bur yeah, and, many, many times um, over. Yeah. So we were just like, nah, nah. And then I was like, well, this thing is happening. And It'd be really fun to do like an exhibit review on the podcast. Yes. So this is so fun. I'm so excited to change up the delivery of the information on the Morbid Museum podcast. Yeah, this is going to be a fun little little thing for us. And if we if we enjoy it, if we feel like it's not a total disaster, it's something that we definitely like to go, do again. And maybe early enough in an exhibit where you can actually see it. <laughs> Yes, this is more like a report of what was. You could experience the museum through us. Yes. You might not check it by the time it closes. It'll be gone. Yes, but. and and in the future also um, looking at more permanent uh, sure. collections as well. Um, and a lot of the artifacts we looked at did come from one particular collection. So uh, for anybody who's interested, this particular exhibit was... what? What's the words that they used, Luke? It was sort of organized by... The Peabody Museum or the Peabody? We st we still haven't decided what the pronunciation. Yeah, so uh, so this museum would be the Peabody Essex Museum, right? In in Massachusetts, yes. And they had the lion's share of the documents that were featured in the exhibit. So yeah, it was presented with or in partnership with the Peabody Essex Museum. PEM, as it is known, yes, uh, which is a very old museum in America. Yes, um, and the New York Historical Society, I. I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, I'm, I'm a former employee there. And so it's such an incredible museum. For those that don't know, it is a museum that focuses obviously on the history of New York, but they do it in an interesting way where they'll look at specific topics in America and how it affected New York, sort of what was the impact on New York. So they do kind of broaden their horizons a bit. I have to say this particular exhibit was very loose in terms of making that connection. Mm -hmm. It really, there really isn't much of one at all. No, there's really no immediate connection to New York. Nothing that's really that tangible besides no, migratory there's... patterns of early Puritan people who may have passed through New, they New York. They didn't even talk after. about that. Yeah. No. In the third part of this exhibition, they do some 
interviews for people from today and some of those people are New Yorkers, but not all of them. So yeah, I have to say in terms of like their mission, this exhibit doesn't actually make a lot of sense, but it's very cool regardless. So the museum is located on Central Park West. It's by uh, 76 and 77th Street. It is right across the street from the American Museum of Natural History, which mm -hmm. is so visited, whereas New York Historical Society is still kind of a little bit on the lowdown. A lot of people still don't know that it's there. And it a is lot a lot of people sleep on the NYHS. It's crazy because it's just it's a phenomenal institution. It is actually the oldest museum. It's the first museum in New York. Mm -hmm. It was founded in 1804, um, although collections started almost immediately after the American Revolutionary War. So they have phenomenal objects there. And it's absolutely worth taking a look when you have time. That being said, most of the <laughs> artifacts from this exhibition do not live there full time. <laughs> so Correct. We'll talk a little bit about the artifacts as we go. So yeah, the just wanted to give you a little intro to the place and sort of, I think now we can kind of walk into the overall idea of the exhibit. They summed it up really nicely in some of their uh, label text at the beginning. And it says, even after 300 years, Salem's witch trials remain a defining example of intolerance and injustice in American history. The extraordinary events of 1692 to three led to the deaths of 25 innocent people, the vast majority of whom were women. Organized by the Peabody Essex Museum, the exhibition includes tangible fragments from the past that illuminate the real lives of Salem's residents, those accused of witchcraft, their accusers, and those who defended them against legal charges, risking their own lives and reputations in the process. The exhibition seeks to ask, in moments of injustice, what role do we play? So I this love that. This is the big idea, as we yeah. would call it, of the museum, this orient orienting label. Yeah. And you and I took a minute to just make sure we in internalized it. Yes. We're like, okay. <laughs> this is the this is the mission of the exhibit. This is what they're trying to achieve. I think it's a fantastic message. Absolutely. Um and like most, yeah, like I again, having worked there, I I know the standard format of a New York Historical Society exhibit. They tend to always work these these types of uh part-time exhibits tend to always work in three parts. So this one is no exception. It sort mm -hmm. of has, the first part is the bulk of the Salem witch trial history and the artifacts that relate to that. And then part two is so fascinating. It talks about Alexander McQueen's 2007 collection in memory of Elizabeth Howe, mm -hmm. 1692. And that was based on, he discovered a genealogical connection with Elizabeth Howe. So he, it turns out that one of the victims at the Salem Witch Trials is a relative of his. And then the third part is uh, Major Arcana, Portraits of Witches in America by contemporary photographer Francis F. Denny, who was a descendant of one of the presiding trial magistrates. And her, her section is really Luke, Luke and I would agree is the real reclaiming part. Cause it talks about, uh, modern witchcraft and what that means today. Right. So starting at part one, you know, again, like everybody probably has a fair idea of the Salem witch trials in the story, but just as a little tiny refresher, just so I know we do have some international listeners and I don't know how much you're taught about this nightmarish happening, but basically Salem witch trials are a terrible chapter in this country. 
people were accused of witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts between uh, the winter of 1692 through the spring of 1693. Close to 200 people were actually accused. Mm -hmm. 30 people were found guilty, most of whom were hung with the exception of one gentleman named uh, Giles Corey, who was pressed to death with stones because he refused to enter a plea. 19 of them were hung and uh, five people died in jail. So horrendous situation. And the key thing to remember and the, the key question that always gets asked is the why behind the Salem witch trials. You know, there's this idea that the devil was in Salem. That's the sort of the message that was being sent around. But really what was going on was a couple of little girls who were bored <laughs> mm -hmm got themselves into some trouble. And so ultimately they decided to start pointing figures. And the first person they point that finger at, of course, is an other. They pointed at a slave who lived inside of Samuel Paris's home. And she was actually, and they did a good job. They did, I, at first we didn't see it and I thought they messed this up, but she's often portrayed as being perhaps an African-American slave, uh, but she actually was an indigenous person of, I think, uh, Barbados. It, Barbados. Thank you. Barbados. Yeah, so the prevailing, prevailing thought about Tichaba has always been that she's been an enslaved person. But yeah. Modern scholarship does suggest the myth busting big time. Yes. She, big was not, she was not black. She was in fact an indigenous person. And so that weaves in a whole other level of complexity yes. into the yes. whole story. And you're right. You know, they talk about Tichuba and then the label about her identity is kind of shifted to the side. Yeah. And unless you're reading every label, like I was, you would have missed it. Yeah. Um, so that part was underplayed, which I thought was on the one hand, you're like, do they lead with her identity or is it her identity something of a, of an asterisk? after all what her importance to the story you know yeah i would say they could have done a lot more with that because mm -hmm. you know that's kind of what the entire exhibit is about it is about othering it is yeah. about sort of separating people and in the earliest parts of the salem witch trials for those that don't know the first people who are accused are sort of odd ducks in the community, people who are homeless, who don't really attend church, you know, people who kind of stick out as like there's something not right with them. Mm -hmm. I bet they're a witch. <laughs> and so this same suspicions and notions around witchcraft can still exist today to some extent, as we've talked about that a lot on this podcast is these prevailing ideas just recently and talking about the kitty cats and all the stuff around that. Sure. So, yeah, I think it was a little bit of a missed opportunity to go in a little bit more on the yeah. Tichuba stuff. But honestly, the first part is so small, you guys. Like this exhibit, again, it works in three parts, but each part is petite because right. they're working within their specific space, which is their women's center. Yes. So, the, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the basic outline of. of and the I've story been through itself. that gallery in different permutations yeah. so many times. Like you were saying, oh, yeah. I, re I recognize this wall piece. I'm like, yeah, it's like a different color. Yeah. It's just been used. So it's like you have to wedge all of these ideas into the same kind of weird geometric shape. Yeah, you're working um, with a shape. Exactly. And the point, they got points for the um, hearth, the animated hearth at the beginning of the exhibit that had like a, yes. little, a little fireplace with a kettle and some, some irons on the fire and like some electronic light really trying a to cauldron. jazz it up. Because, yeah. you know, the first part of the exhibit and the, a lot of, the, most of the exhibit, like, f like uh, physically is paper. 
It's, yeah. it's legal documents that are surviving elements of these trial proceedings in Salem. And, you know, so I'm sure when they were planning this, they're like, how in the world are we going to animate this, right. these documents? Because just the documents, some people love documents and love old paper, love old, sure. love, old love old writing. And what's on them is interesting, but you have to look and they, have all, they had facsimiles because it was hard to read. Yeah. But these little theatrical elements I thought were really cool. So we, we start with that part yes. of the house, the hearth. And then other parts of the house come in the right. later in the, as, exhibit, as exhibit goes on. And so the second part is dealing with the accusers and the accused, right? Yeah. So once you walk in past your cauldron <laughs> mm -hmm. and there's creepy music playing too, it hits you right when you walk in to your right. There it is. That son of a bitch, the Malaya smell. Ah, yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So that was really cool for us because obviously we did we did a pretty deep dive on that artifact and to actually get to see their copy was incredibly cool. And their copy was not as old as the Malayas. It, it's um, a contemporary copy of the time. So it was, what was the date on that one? Like 1660s? Yeah, I think that's I right. Think, yeah, but regardless... Very cool to see it. That belongs to them. I, I believe yeah, that's an that's actual New York historian. NYHS's Malleus Maleficarum. Yeah, but generally you would not see that out in the collection, I don't think. I think that's something that's kept in storage for the most part and only brought out for these kinds of occasions. <laughs> the exhibit was really dark, so it wouldn't, it have been, wouldn't have been that averse to like the paper, even though any exposure is you know, very scary. They chose not to keep the book open. Also, yes, so that's, they, that helped also, mm -hmm. I think, making it more accessible and keeping it out for the duration of this exhibit. The exhibit started in October, by the way, and is, like Luke said, is ending on January 22nd. So it's been out for a bit. So incredibly, for me, very powerful to be in front of that text. And just, it's overwhelmingly yeah. sad. What that it book was... Did. It was it was uh, really interesting to see it out, and uh, it stopped us both in our tracks. And you know, this was important gr grounding the the discussion of, yeah. of witch trials with the European context that has been going on in Europe for hundreds of years because of the Malleus. Yeah. You know, so um, and they had the the frontispiece pulled out and you know displaying it, so yeah. you couldn't couldn't miss it in the big red big red mm -mm. text, just like we saw uh, in our social media. So then we we go through this first part. We've been primed. We now know we've been placed in time. We've been placed in a hearth. Now we, <laughs> now we cross the threshold into the the people who are yeah. part of the drama of the Salem witch trials. So let's talk about our favorite artifacts in this section. What I didn't anticipate. And Luke and I talked about this in the moment was there were a lot of things that actually belonged to the victims. And the reason why I was so surprised was because when you were arrested for witchcraft in Salem and you were ultimately condemned, you lost everything. Your home was taken away. Your belongings were taken away. You know, you you didn't have anything anymore. So the fact that family members were able to retain some of these objects and, th and then eventually give them to places like the Peabody, it's incredible. Really, really, yeah, really uh, intimate, moving also. Intimate that, objects. Yeah. So what was the, what was the one that you thought was the coolest in that room? Oh my God. I mean, can we talk about the window for a second? Oh, uh, since we both, I think, resonated with that. Yes. Um, the window from the townhouse, the town family. Yes. Um, this beautiful 
heavy glass plated window that is from the house of this family that was majorly concerned. I believe Rebecca Nurse is from that house. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, one of the most persecuted families in this story. And Katie and I were both looking through the window and you were saying like, can you imagine what this window saw? Yeah. And to think about the fire lights outside of people walking by and with a torch, you know, just walking by and just what they would say at night and the, the tension on the inside of the wall. And they talk about it in the, in the label, you know, how a window is a barrier, but it shows you what's going on outside and within. Yeah. And to imagine the feelings and tension on either side of the window was very palpable as we're talking about the accused and the accusers. Even you know, now I'm getting chills just like standing next to that window it and thinking was about that so moving yeah. so moving i would say for me that was probably the most like emotional object in the collection because yeah. it did directly connect to you know their arrest essentially right yeah. it's it's really really <laughs> something else the other two that that i thought were like really beautiful were john proctor who's one of the more famous individuals who was um, accused of witchcraft and ultimately executed. Uh, he's famous because of The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Um, but he isn't any more or less important than anybody else in the story. He just happened to make for a good protagonist in that play. Mm -hmm. um, they had two things. One was a petition written on his behalf by his neighbors and other members of the community speaking to his, basically that he was a great citizen and would never do something like this. He was a godly man, a good man. Ultimately, of course, that petition would fall on deaf ears, but they had that. And then they had a sundial that mm. was donated by the Proctor family, who I didn't even know, or I didn't consider the fact that there were were still proctors around or distant relatives of right. the proctors, right. which is super cool. But Elizabeth did have a son. So, you know, if it's the really direct, the direct line, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. The sun was beautiful. It's a gorgeous artifact, by the way, this isn't just us like rambling about the, I mean, it is us rambling about this shit, <laughs> but we'll, we will post uh, photos of these beautiful artifacts as well. So you guys can see them, but gorgeous. So well maintained. And I liked how they couched it in the exhibit. It was a very big deal to own something of this quality, something this nice. And a sundial in and of itself is a constant reminder of sort of the passing of time. Yes. And I, I imagine living in Salem in 1692, 1693, the year felt very long, but the days were very short. When yes. you were when you were on trial, although probably we, waiting in the prison felt like years. Sure. To say nothing of the fact that you're in this new land and yeah. these kinds of merchant objects were ways of ordering the wild you're in. Telling mm -hmm. time, managing time, knowing what year it is, despite being in a brand new turf where in, in terms of European context, you're in no man's land. Absolutely. You know, and to know something like measuring time is a wonder of this you know colonization and what they're trying to do but also a marker of suffering in this story yeah you know because each day brings war port has new grim portents within it there was also this tape loom that they displayed yes which was really cool so it's this domestic object that would be you know used to do different kinds of home weaving and crafts and things like that and it was a wooden paddle with these slits in it and you see it a lot of times at museums for for textile programs it comes out yeah but this one was really cool. It had so many cool carvings on it. Um, it was it 
beautiful, like a really Stunning. beautiful object. I've never seen one like that before. No, so decorative and it has yeah. like Christian and like counter magical, you know, uh, spells carved into it apparently that were very popular at the time. So they had a couple of chests and other small domestic items. Not so small, the chest was big. Um, chest was huge. Huge things that are over 350 years old. Um, so it was really interesting to see the domestic sphere. Yeah, the chest was the only one that even really seemed to have much wear and tear. Everything else was beautifully kept. Yeah. Like really, truly. And for all we know, that wear and tear was from the owner. Oh yeah. And a you lot know? of times those so chests- Who knows how old that chest was? And those chests are always like covered in some gross pelt. Oh yeah. And, and they, <laughs> they lose all their hair and they become bald. They all look they all look hideous. They, none of them look good. Every museum that was doing their exhibits in the sixties has one, um, speaking from experience. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I thought it was cool how those the, the objects kind of animated the, the 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 documents, which were sometimes kind of like just not interesting or dull or just literally inaccessible to us, like just not legible. Yeah, you know? I mean that's the thing too is if you've never read documents from this time period, it's also more of what you would call old English yes. in that <laughs> that's S's right. are all written like F's. Yes. So you have to replace every single one in every single word that you read. So it makes reading it a pain in the ass. Congress. And oh every every U is a V. Yeah, it goes it's on a and fucking on. nightmare. And so there were some brochures, like some increase in Cotton Mather propaganda yes. that they had they they loaned out from the NYHS. So um I think we've covered that element of the exhibit. Do you want to move on to the other to the other parts? Yeah. So um so yeah, part part one did a, a really good job of sort of making it more personalized. It didn't do a good job of sort of telling you how the story ends. No, no. <laughs> but one thing that uh, it does carry that a little bit into this second part, just a little bit with the Alexander McQueen stuff. So if Luke, if you want to go in a little bit more on sure. what yeah. uh, part two does. So the second part of the exhibit deals with uh, the fashion response. So in the orienting label, they're talking about how are you responding to injustice, to tragedy and things like that. And so it chronicles Alexander McQueen's uh, journey with Salem. His ancestor, Elizabeth Howe, was accused of witchcraft in 1692 in an outer village like near Salem. I can't remember the name of the exact town, mm -hmm. but it was showing us the ripples of um, how the witch trials, of course, were the most were infamous in Salem, now known as Danvers in Massachusetts. Yeah. But other communities participated in similar things. And just like they have been doing in Europe for hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. But this was one of the most, you know, um, remarkable cases of it in terms of the hysteria that it created in the community. And so Elizabeth Howe's story is unearthed by Alexander McQueen. He like goes on this research trip to the Peabody, to Massachusetts, and he goes and digs up all of these documents on Elizabeth Howe's judicial odyssey. And so those are all displayed around in this square gallery where the centerpiece is one of McQueen's dresses that he designed in honor of his ancestor uh, in 2007 for his fall winter ready to wear collection. Um, so the whole line of clothing that he's designed in one season is dedicated to his ancestor who uh, was charged of being a witch in Massachusetts 300 years before. And this takes place in 2007 when the, um, the garments first appeared on the runway. So there's a big dress in the mill, this beautiful black dress with this glittery, very like up to the neck, uh, severe sort of chest piece oh my God. going on. It's stunning. 
stunning. It's it's red carpet. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's wearable. It's, it's not it's like light. so high fashion couture yeah. that you would be like, this is stupid. I would never put this mm -hmm. on my body. It's actually like if I was a fancy person, <laughs> did fancy no, yeah. Things, yeah. I would be thrilled to wear that dress. <laughs> and the dress is in this beautiful case and it's in the middle of this giant pentagram that's painted onto the floor. So cool. So it was really kind of a showstopper moment. You go through these fussy old documents and you turn the corner and you're in this like fashion moment. It's so exciting. It was, yeah. It's a big pivot. Yeah. And, and we learned that the pentagram that was on the floor there was meant to resemble the one that was on the floor during the actual uh, runway show. Yes, in, Which is in, very cool. in, in Milan. Um, in Milan. <laughs> yes. And so I loved this, but I also thought it was kind of a, I also thought it was kind of a biff for me, like overall. Same, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're so talking about this. Let's just say, okay. <laughs> so. First of all, a first, lot of people have issues with Alexander McQueen. Sure. Right off the bat. Escondolo yeah. City. This is an old, not old, but it's a weird time to bring this out to juxtapose these things. And when you saw the advertising for the exhibit, the dress is like the focal point. It really is. But it's not a fashion exhibit. It's not. It's, it's a history exhibit. The, I think an overall issue is sort of doing too much. Yeah. What I And I'll say one more thing and I'll let you tag in, I promise. No, 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 please. And that is like, I think... I have, I have a lot of like thoughts on this part of the exhibit. I think the chief one was, is that this part of the exhibit, I think failed just in terms of the visitor experience. Like I saw you reading, you were doing so good. You were reading every, ex <laughs> every label at this section. Because that's me as a museum goer. Most museum goers are not like that. Right. But I had read every label in the first section. Yeah. And when I got to the second section, I was just like, boop, I just, I, I didn't You were feel, tired. You didn't feel like go doing it anymore. I didn't feel the magnetism back down to the documents because on the, on the one hand, you know how the story ends. Mm -hmm. This woman doesn't fucking make it, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. just the level of drama that unfolds from all of that. And I think you're looking at the pictures of the dresses up top and then the documents below relating to Elizabeth Howe. I just think Elizabeth Howe could have been its own section and then talk about the clothes. You know, it just... It seemed a little discordant. A um, little bit. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think for me also, they could have had way more of the actual dresses there. And the yeah. head, they had pictures of the pictures coolest pieces. of the line, yeah. One garment and out of like 20. I think, wasn't there one more in there? Or was it just the one black dress? Because I, I, I'm trying to remember what was a picture and what was an actual dress. It might have just been that one. It was the one dress, I believe. Yeah, because that was the most visually stunning piece in the entire exhibit. And it I was the witchiest. Not the witchiest thing that was part <laughs> of that collection in the slightest. Because he had some witchy pieces in that collection. Yeah, and I'd love to just say that real quick the collection itself That's is cool. actually stunning and i watched the runway show of it and the runway show is exciting and interesting and it's also weird that they didn't really show that um or yeah. play the music from it or anything like that like i don't know if this was all copyright stuff or whatever yeah. but like i feel like in this exhibit in general there was a massive lack of audio visual interactive content which is really weird for such a well-funded institution they are not rinky dink you guys no, no. you know there wasn't a they whole put, lot to do in they, there they, they blew all the money on the tarot card madness <laughs> <laughs>
at the end of the exhibit, there no, is and, like a know, little like <laughs> take a picture spot where there are magnets of tarot cards. Yeah, what did that ca- cost? They go to the <laughs> fucking dollar store to make that cards. shit was the coolest. But yeah, it, it was, was like fun. there was there was a little bit of multimedia in the beginning when you had the like little text pulled out from different testimonies. Yeah. Like kind of in a soundscape, if you were. That was cool. I was like more of that because pull the text, make it uh, animate it, right? Like yeah. modulate it. And then there's a little bit of media at the end talking about the media portrayals. But so it seems like there's like no power in the middle. But yeah, this is a really cool element. Like the story is so cool of yeah. McQueen of McQueen stumbling on this this history, personal history, and then reclaiming it in terms of a fashion story. And those pieces, like you were saying, yeah, really cool. There's like different sun and moon. And the f- one we really liked was the picture we saw of the dress that was like a fire dress, mm-hmm. like this blazing hot, again, super sparkly um, number where it's like these flames tearing through this woman and she had the great hair and it was really stunning. I so, know. Then like, yeah, there were, Parts of it that were meant to be very celestial, very mm-hmm. pagan, mm-hmm. like really tapping in again to that reclaiming of an identity as a witch of being a more of an empowering thing for women yes. than, you know, being murdered <laughs> for being a woman, essentially. Being murdered. I'm pulling up a label that I'm supposed to pull up. Yes. So <laughs> on the on the Elizabeth Howe side of things, I loved that they zeroed in on someone that I actually didn't really know much about at all. When I'm going to an exhibit about a topic I know about, I want to learn new things. So yes. this was great. I didn't know anything about Elizabeth Howe. And we also came across perhaps the greatest piece of label text I've ever seen in my life. Yes. So Luke's going to read that to us. Okay. So this label text, which is epic, is the deposition of Isaac Cummings Sr. versus Elizabeth Howe. So the woman in question inspired the collection by Alexander McQueen. Witches were often blamed for the death of livestock. Elizabeth Howe was accused by members of the Cummings family of causing the sudden death of a mare. Isaac Cummings Sr. reported that shortly after he had refused to allow the Howes to borrow his mare, it inexplicably appeared abused and would not eat. Cummings' brother attempted to treat the mare for parasitic stomach worms by inserting a lit tobacco pipe in the horse's rear end to ease its belly ache. Cummings claimed the pipe's tobacco blazed with a blue flame, probably due to the horse's flatulence, (laughs) not witchcraft. (laughs) That was so large that it nearly burned down the barn. The horse, quotes, fell down dead the next day. So Katie is faithfully reading every label. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. There's one over here. And I'm like, what? I'm like, walking and friends, around. this is why you read the label text. Because you never know when you're going to find gold. You never know where you're going to find. I mean, a lit pipe in the ass of There's a horse. So many layers to the animal abuse that is that story. But what's what's great about that story is it gives you a very solid example of what it was to be someone who was accused. It was stupid shit like that. And of yeah. course, as we all know, the basis of a lot of the trials was this notion of spectral evidence that was introduced. The idea that you could say that someone's familiar, someone's spirit came to yes. you and did something to you. So it it didn't require hard evidence. And this story is an incredible, incredible example of how asinine these complaints were truly emphasis on the ass (laughs) (laughs) absolutely bizarre um just just 
Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. beautiful, imaginative content. And there's so many poor animals that are ensnared in these in these witchy stories and these papal bulls. And enough's enough. Yeah, I've had it. I've, I've had, had it. I've had it. Leave the animals alone. But but that. witches got accused of a number one thing that the neighbors would do to one another in Salem and in many of the other witch trial situations. They would accuse people because their livestock died. Yeah. They would say, oh, so-and-so waved at me today, and the next day my pig fell over dead. Correct. She killed him. It was her. You yeah. know, it's crazy shit. Oh, yeah. Luke also learned Luke had never heard of a witch cake prior to this exhibition. I had not really. <laughs> it had been a long time since I'd been been told what a witch cake was. So yeah, in the, first, in the first scene, in the first scene, first part of the exhibit, uh, the whole reason the whole thing got kicked off is because Tichaba was ordered to make a witch's cake yes. to address some other unknown entity that was happening to the girls, right? The first yes. the girls. And a witch cake was- consists of rye and pee from the yeah. girls. Correct. And they f- and she feeds it to a dog. You feed it to a dog. Yes. See, this is again, you've got animals involved. Yeah. And I'm, not, Leave I'm, them not, alone. I'm not happy about it. So I am against it. So maybe that's why I, I blocked it you've out. Decided uh, <laughs> trauma. But yeah, the yeah, it was like the witch's cake. I'm like, the witch's cake, the Malayas Malficarum, yeah. you know, we got some good shit within 10 feet of, of each other. Like we're gonna have we're gonna have a good time. So all in all, we're being snobbish, but it was a good exhibit. I mean, in terms of its idea and the yeah. crazy, the crazy collection of things that you saw within 45 minutes is pretty interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, and then and then we got to that third part, which, which I was loved. I loved it too, and that was sort of again like the real reclaiming, re- yes. and, and they're referring to that as no one in 1692 was a witch, <laughs> no one actually was performing witchcraft, except for uh, it sounds like Tichaba was actually doing some folk magic, mm-hmm. and so this part of the exhibit, this photographer, Francis F. Denny, she interviewed a variety of subjects who she took photographs of. And each of these individuals practices some form of witchcraft today. And so I loved this because- It was the coolest. I, yeah. I mean, I myself, I like aspects of witchcraft. There's stuff that yeah. I find really interesting. I'm not a practicing witch myself. I have friends who are. And some of them, you know, follow- the moon cycles and you know really do worship nature and things like that but this really gave you like a really broad range of witches which i thought was really fucking cool and some of these individuals i just want to look up real quick some of these some of these ladies because they're beautiful photographs incredible she's an incredible photographer. beautiful color in these amazing backdrops um and these women are in these powerful poses and they're so confident and self-directed and like happy and there's just such this yeah. joy and, the, and these testimonies appear next to the pictures and the testimonies are direct powerful haunting you know they're loud they're, yeah. they're really reclaiming the witch identity in that brand and it's um, and it's a very it's cool. new thing you yeah. know like new age stuff and paganism and all that stuff that's only in the last like several decades and really i I have to say for me, I feel like there's like a witch renaissance right now where like women, every woman in the world is like claiming some kind of witch. Absolutely. There's a, there's a global coven happening. Yeah. And I think it is because of this idea that witchcraft was a way to abuse and stifle women and ultimately commit atrocities against them. And so if I say, fuck, yes, I'm a witch. 
you can't do anything to hurt me. Like I'm proud of that. This is who I am. I absolutely. I would rather believe in nature than the destructive religions that have destroyed this planet. Those Internalizing the otherism and turning it into a power. Yes, it's when, a beautiful. When it's thing. like, oh, you're telling me that I am a, a, a divine being that is that has powers that has you know all of this. I can lord over you. I'm superior. Yeah, I will gladly you know. embrace that. Yeah. I want to read my favorite. Please. One, um, this particular woman, her name is uh, Shine Blackhawk, and she's a New Yorker. And she said, my brand of witchcraft is my own, a wild eclectic brew of hoodoo, black and indigenous folk spirituality and shamanism. I am a solitary witch and the woods are my church. I pray in nature and use the elements to heighten my rituals and ceremonies. I use tools such as drums, rattles, animal bones, feathers, crystals, and sigils. And I channel animal spirits, spirit guides, and ancestors. I pray with my full body and spirit, not on my knees. Which is such a fucking awesome last sentence. <laughs> yeah. These people are like, they're very much like activists. Yes. And in their communities. And like some of them, like one of them was this gentle lady who was a nurse. And she's, yes. been like, and she's like, oh yeah, I've been a high priestess for 30 years. Like just dropping this knowledge. And you're like, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I could have seen her somewhere in real life. For as many like people who were like, you know, they look like, uh, you know, various kinds of like crunchy teachers we may yes. have had. Like, like, <laughs> like their sister who's kind of off the grid, hasn't filed taxes Everyone in like lives in years. Woodstock, New York. Correct. Yeah. In a commune. Yeah. Yeah, yep. and which I love. I love that, like the tattoos, the jewelry, the the mama mumu energy, yeah, and the the indigenous identity that is yes. so throughout, and like the bipoc spirit and the two spirit sort of identity. So many, so much of that, which was so cool to see because yeah. you take Salem, which is the Puritan, you know, sort of white or original settlers yeah. of Massachusetts, and to say that the witches embrace all the colors of the rainbow, so to speak, in terms of identity, and that witchcraft awesome. is also a spectrum. Yes, that, yes, there's like folk magic of Eastern and Western Europeans, but you know, we have to remember that. Witchcraft also extends to Haitian cultures and mm -hmm. African cultures. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's similar in terms of shamans and witch doctors. And a lot of these women talked about being healers specifically. Yes. So they look at witchcraft as, uh, you know, medicinal for if not for literal health issues for the soul, which yeah. is like a beautiful thing. And that's honestly, without that last part, the exhibit really would have fallen on its ass. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I almost wanted them to like skip the dress and do more of the Salem backstory and then more of the modern witches. And maybe Me that's too. it. That's it yeah. for the exhibit. You know, the third piece in the middle just didn't fit. I love the soundscape at the end with the voices of the of the neo witches today yes. sharing. That was the coolest. It was almost like not enough. I was like listening for it. It was like big pauses. I'm like, but 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 can I play this for myself? Like I wanted to listen to all of it. Yeah, them. I wouldn't mind it. Maybe some headphones. Sure. And mm -hmm. like have it be mm -hmm. a, a specific listener experience. But yeah, you know, in the <laughs> like I said, it doesn't really uh appropriately end the salem story at any point other than no. to talk a little bit about reparations which is useful because i think that's mm -hmm. good to know that you know there has been work done to uh and and i didn't know this actually that reparations started within a couple of years after the trials concluded i'd never i'd never learned about that before which is really awesome to learn but i also didn't know that to this day they're still working on getting everybody acquitted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was something we both were like looking at each other like, wow, the like, story, the, the exoneration story is one that we were very not woke to. And, and again, um, needed to be more prominent because if you weren't reading the label text, 
you wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, that was it was really powerful. Um, yeah, I liked the petitions that they had. You know, there were petitions for Elizabeth, Elizabeth Howe's innocence. There yes. was a lot of privations. Um, but yeah, the exoneration story. Because again, we talk about watching the Crucible or watching documentary. It's like a subtitle at the end, and it's usually just it's um, epilogue. It's over. But that was something I would be really interested to yeah. learn more and about I that think, legal process. And I think it's also very relevant to today because with similar pieces of our history, other atrocities that have occurred in this country. A big conversation is these two things. Have you exonerated people who were formally believed to be guilty of a crime of something that they should at this point be exonerated for? And also, have you paid reparations? We think of instances like the genocide of the indigenous people of this country. We think of slavery. What has this country done to move forward? And so in the case of the Salem witch trials, efforts happened right away. And I'm sure in large part, that's because they were white landowning family members. Yeah. I have a confession to make. I have a confession to make. make I'm yeah. a witch. Um, no, I knew so, it. <laughs> um, so I found the original exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum on the Salem Witch Trials. That was from like two years ago during the pandemic. Oh, nice. I found a video tour of it. <gasps> Do you want me to tell you how they did it versus how the NYHS did it? A hundred percent. Okay. Get ready, listeners, if you actually care at all. If which, you're still with us. Yeah. So the, the the Peabody leaned into some things differently. They had not only a window, they also had a door. A oh, front door. They that would have made me cry. They had a front door of one of the homes. I think it was the townhouse. I think it's all these pieces of the townhouse. And it's really sort of, you know, it's literally lit like my bedroom. Like it's just white, like pearl light. That was something we didn't talk about. The NYHS exhibit had purple color. Yes. Which is a witchy color. Apparently, it's witchy, yeah. A purple door was supposed to signify a witch's house. Yes. So I thought I love the purple, even though it was so dark at NYHS. Anyways, this is a white light <laughs> exhibit at the uh, Peabody. So they had a they had a door. They dealt with the jailing experience. They had you walk into like a, a room with a drop ceiling that represented how low the ceiling was in the jail and mm. like the, the bleakness of the jail environment without being too graphic and like over the top. Yeah. They had like timbers of I guess part of the jail, and so they dealt with that and then they had a really great section on the memorialization mm. and sort of the memory of it so it really did a, a much better like a a through z yeah it's still document heavy you know and that's, so and that's fucked up because it's like in terms of like the new york historical society that is part of like the reckoning and reclaiming is the memorializations you didn't have anything on that yeah and <laughs> um that part i thought was really successful and yeah you know, i just like again, that. just we love the arc. Like you and me are more like we're 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 more linear. Yeah. Like we're like give us the give us the old way of doing it. Like okay, with the dress. All right, all right. You know <laughs> the old way, but also like narratively pure. Like wanting to get the story. Yeah, correct. tell a whole story, and also mm-hmm. like I already I don't want to overly harp on this, but like <laughs> you could have had something like that jail cell. You could have had something to be involved with. Something that I used to do because I've I've written academic papers on Salem. I've taught a few different classes on Salem. And one of the things I always did when I taught it was there's this really great website. um, I think it was actually through National Geographic where you go there and it immediately takes you through what would have been your choices if you were accused of witchcraft and you sort of Mm. click on different options, click on different options. And, you know, ultimately it will end with you've been hanged or like you have watched your friends get hung. And so it just kind of really emphasizes 
the stakes and makes it very heavy, you know? And I don't know, there was something about the first half that could have had a little more gravitas. Yeah, I agree. And uh, even down to the Tichaba label, they they leaned into her uh, indigenous heritage at the top of the label. Yeah. So like I was looking at certain things in the in this virtual tour. So, you know, um, it was interesting. But yeah, they tried to use material to kind of elucidate the story better. Sounds like that would have been more my cup of tea. It would have been more our speed for sure in terms of a standard like treatment of Salem. Because like we're thinking of it like in the podcast, like how we do it in the podcast. We yeah. try to break we would try to break the story down into either one or two sections, parts, but into a cohesive audio narrative, you know, that we would yeah. sort of prepare. Um and so you have to have beginning, middle, and end. You know, you have to tie up all the loose ends. Um but uh, sure. yeah. I would I'm say glad overall, the exhibit happened. Yeah. But. Overall I I really did enjoy it. Um yeah. but I I thought that it was going to be not like a definitive account of the witch trials per se, but I thought it was going to tell a more complete story than it did. I was surprised it wasn't 16 dresses. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I really wanted more dresses. Cause like the media was so dress heavy. I know. Yeah. And I really wasn't sure what to expect, but um, where was yeah, the I, dress from 1692? <laughs> I also like have a, you know, I, I have not done a lot of exhibit work beyond what I've done in graduate school, but yeah. like I've, I've been worked at enough museums to where I can like kind of walk through the thought process. Like just imagine sure. these planning meetings, like, well, we got this, this money to put these, we got to use these McQueen things like to get yeah. the other half of the grant. And it's like, the time is running out as to when we have to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like there's some, how do you, you know, appease this donor who right. secured these these textiles how do you you know there's so much other governance and pressure especially a place like that where it's like somebody maybe gave you five million dollars and like you oh, have yeah. to spend that a certain way and you know that should not impact your educational mission getting really interesting side side sidebar there but yeah it was a, it was a cool concept yeah but the unfortunately the gallery space didn't allow for all three subjects to really breathe properly no and it's always going to be an issue with that particular gallery that space. gallery is so, so tiny squished. yeah Typical that it's the Ugh. women's fucking gallery and we get these three tiny little rooms to work with. Needless to say. And in general, just to, just to put a, you know, a little yeah. cherry on top of that ex exhibition. The one thing that I have wanted to talk about in terms of Salem is the actual town of Salem itself today. And I don't think it did talk much about that in the exhibition, no, not at which all. is interesting because I think there's a lot of argument to be had around has Salem reclaimed that story or does Salem exploit that story? Because if you've never been to Salem, Massachusetts, it is witch central and it varies from incredible shops that have crystals and spell books and all yeah. kinds of interesting stuff for an actual practicing witch or anybody who's interested in learning about witchcraft. They also have, you know, stuff from the show Bewitched and silly black witch hats. And there are exhibitions where people jump out and scare you. And it's just this weird thing of like, no one here was a witch and innocent human beings died. Mm -hmm. So what's, it to, would, it, what's it, to celebrate here? It, it, it would be like having like uh, a schlocky, touristy, um, like slave auction in like Savannah, Georgia. Like 
like, you know, having photo ops and having crazy gross gift gift shops that would glorify enslavement. The problem or is having a cat parade where you throw stuffed cats out of a window. Sure. The problem is that is that Halloween is corporatized and you know it's that's what Salem has become. Everyone wants to go in October. That's it. Spooky times. Spooky, spooky times. They've made it spooky. And it's yeah. like the only fucking spooky thing that happened there was that people believed fucking girls, little girls, that there were birds flying into their rooms at night and forcing them to sign the devil's book or whatever fucking nonsense they said. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, I I went there for a Halloween weekend in college and I had a lot of fun. And I mean, I get it. I insane, my debauched. Time there too. It's debauched. Um, but I had I had the ick the whole time of I was course. there. Yeah, no, it's from a museum pro pers- perspective. It's not. Uh, we don't love to see it. Um, as a, as also like a. It's a human. A, as a human, a human sure. who cares about other humans. It was exactly. It, it's not my. Well, uh, that's cup of tea. The, how many times have we confronted that problem of a space for commemoration, a space for trauma and memory, and how those spaces can, when those spaces are not respected, it's very hurtful. It's very, very. Painful. And we're talking about a tragedy from 300 plus years ago. Yeah. Which is the, the amazing thing about Salem to me is that it is so small, even though it was such a gross injustice. So small. 200 people charged, you know, a couple dozen hanged, but like, you know, and that doesn't matter, right? It's what it represents, what happened in like right. the miscarriage of justice and, you know, the religious fanaticism. And it's a very strong, concrete, well documented example of yes. the witchcraft hysteria that went on for hundreds of years. Yeah. And persecution of women. Yep. proper like yep. at large so the the place the salem itself has not reclaimed its history Mm-mm. properly Mm-mm. you know and i wonder i don't know people who like live in salem but i imagine there's a fair amount of people who have a lot of pride um for salem but i also imagine there's those same folks who would like yeah i'm actually not here from um september 30th <laughs> until november 3rd oh you um, can bet your fucking <laughs> boots there are people who rent out their yeah, houses and well, Airbnbs for the month of Absolutely. Absolutely. I would. You know. Yeah, and it's kooks, beautiful there, by the way. The kooks are in town. It's stunning. Which is it's the other reason beautiful. that people are attracted to go there in the fall, not just because yeah. it's spooky season, but at, if you've never been to New England in the fall, holy shit. It's the most beautiful place on earth. And Salem Maritime National Historical Park is a wonderful unit of the national park system. You've got the House of Seven Gables. You've got like great. There's a goofy ass pirate museum. there. Yeah, you've got you've got high and low museums there. You've got good stuff and you've got schlocky stuff. We love schlocky stuff. Um, You know, I I go to a couple schlocks. Obobolachi schlock. I go. Um, But uh, yeah, I feel like we should do another like reporting from the field, like live in Salem. We're just hating on everybody's costumes. I'm just in a bad mood the whole time. Buffoonery. Yeah. Just being like, you're part of the problem. It's going to be a video podcast. Have you read read my t-shirt? Have you read my (laughs) t-shirt? That was the cool thing too, was the was the witchy corner of the NYHS museum store. The best swag at the NYHS museum store. Christmas is coming 11 months away. Go to the NYHS store and once online. The exhibit clo- Here's some insider info, by the way, oh, kids, shit. from okay, museum people. It. This is true of any museum that like a bigger one that has like exhibit specific merchandise. Once that exhibit closes, that shit gets marked down almost immediately. So this is the time to get some cool witchy shit. I, this I'm, is about to happen. Yeah. So I highly recommend. They probably have a website too that's they definitely to have the a store, right? E-merch. Yeah. So I highly recommend taking a look if you're into that <laughs> stuff. 
That is a hot take. Insider and tip. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Those depressed ass salaries didn't just, just you know, we didn't, that's just, yeah, we got something out of that. Okay. Sure did. Yeah. Sure did. Uh, sure. All right. So can we talk a little bit about the uh, monument statue drama of uh, Central Park West? Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. Again, the New York Historical Society covers hundreds of years of history, right? And But for the most part, the things they own are New York adjacent in some way. So imagine mine and Luke's surprise when we walked into the lobby, because I hadn't been there in many years, and Luke hadn't been in a few years himself. Well, four years, actually. Yeah. yeah. And inside the, the front hall there is one Mr. Thomas Jefferson. And we go, huh? Mm -hmm. What are you doing here? You're not particularly popular these days. <laughs> <laughs> Taking up a very prominent place in the so lobby prominent. of the museum. Mm -hmm. um, really begging for our attention. Like um, right, right across. Like you could see them almost giving each other dirty looks like a whole wall dedicated to Frederick Douglass. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um and we came to find out that the uh, statue was a historic a piece of bronze that was intended, I believe, for um, like the Capitol, like Jefferson's portrait statue in the Capitol in Washington. Yeah. But I think it ended up in City Hall. Yes. And it was booted from City Hall. <laughs> they were like, we can't keep this here anymore. <laughs> Everyone's mad. <laughs> this New York City Council is like, we're beleaguered. It's, it's COVID. We got a lot going on. But let's take care of some really, you know, by bipartisan shit, let's get Thomas Jefferson out of City Hall. And so the commandment was he had to go to a place where he could be interpreted in context. And so Jefferson was dropped in the lobby of the New York Historical Society. And I love this because every time I have a conversation with someone who gets really outraged about the removal of statues, as mm -hmm. if anyone has ever actually given a flying fuck about a statue. Especially how we're so statue heavy in this country. Stop it. Stop it. You didn't even know who that person was. Right. Cut it and the we're fuck out. And we're half a block from where Teddy Roosevelt had just been removed he, within the la within the last year yeah. from the so, steps of the uh, Natural History Museum. My feeling on it is those things belong in museums. They need to be interpreted because a statue just out in the world is a memorialization of the individual. It is recognizing that that person is worthy of remembering and for positive reasons. Statues don't get erected for negative reasons. No, and they don't come with a contextual label. Usually. No, by all means, take out all those Confederates, pop them in museums. Yeah. I, they don't need to be destroyed necessarily. They absolutely need to be put somewhere else. And I'm yeah. and I'm so thrilled that NYHS took that statue and has absolutely. label text to accompany it and explain why they have it. Yeah. It's it's great, and uh, it was cool to see. And yeah, we don't think of stat we think of statues as the most immovable objects ever, and the fact that <laughs> these guys are moving around, changing positions. Yeah, and you know what's what's interesting too is like right the Teddy the Teddy Monument uh, in front of American uh, Museum of Natural History is being moved to like his presidential library, I think, in Montana. That's a great place for him, which yeah. is awesome. Like this epic, you know, and in, against the buttes with the problematic images of an Afro originated person and an indigenous person flanking him. Um, it's a messed up statue. Yeah, it's a little bit much. It's a little imperial. But Teddy Roosevelt was a little imperial. You know he what I mean? He was a so, little imperial. He was. Yeah, yeah, so, all the good that he did, 
he did a but lot then, you of know, not good. Yes. And then when we were walking through the lobby, you were saying, you know, uh, we were talking about Frederick Douglass. And yeah, yeah there's a be there's beautiful sculptures of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln on the steps of the NYHS entrances. Yes. And they're so powerful. They're so different. They're not on a plinth. They're on the steps. They're at your level. They're yeah. selfie ready. They're, they're oh, very I have so many pictures of me and Frederick Douglass from the years that there's I worked there. They're so iconic, but who's to say that in 150 years, and we're, we're saying this is like part of the historical imagination, folks, something comes to light. Abraham Lincoln was a serial killer or he was evil. You know what I mean? Like he, no, these I mean, folks, there, there these are folks should be moved. There are Their legacies are under attack. Yeah. Absolutely. Frederick yeah. Douglass, big time. Controversy with Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, there's all the stuff with Lincoln and the Dakota Native Americans. Big time. That's a, that's a complex, yeah. terrible story. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know that <laughs> it's so funny to say this but i don't know that statues are supposed to be permanent yeah they're like <laughs> they're permanent for like a lifetime you know yeah like they, I don't they're, know. they're just as movable as removable and you know we're very privileged coming from a place where statues aren't torn down because of mass violence and protest sure. and political upheaval and things like that you know and certainly yeah, the, the, things, the things that happened on january 6th were probably the closest that we came to such an event which is a terrifying thing yeah yeah if there had been um, a statue of Frederick Douglass there, I'm not sure how that would have gone down. <laughs> yes. Um, so we had we had a marvelous time at the NYHS. We saw the deli exhibit. Oh, y'all. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was Love compelling. it. <laughs> I wanted pastrami so bad. You did. You were like, there is a food component to this, correct? Like, I was like, why is there not a deli at the end of this? Where's yeah, why the is goddamn there not, pastrami? Why, <laughs> when I walk in, why am I not handed a half sour fucking pickle? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So this exhibit. So NYHS about, messing yes. up left and right. Hire me back. <laughs> Coming out of the pandemic, we got I some will things. I literally just show up with a big old, like one of those like deli barrel of pickles. <laughs> That's what you should outside. do. You should just be a pickle lady outside. I'll be a pickle docent. <laughs> <laughs> Chief pickle officer, That's Katie me. Mead, Dr. Mead. Um, doctor, Dr. Pickle, Dr. Pickle, uh, Dr. Pickle. <laughs> yeah, that was a really cool exhibit. I love when they go in on some like NY foodie. Oh, you know, it's so great. One of my favorite so exhibits when I worked there was it was called Beer Here, and it was the sure. history of brewing beer in New York. And they actually did have a tasting at the end. See, yeah, it's possible. It is possible. There could have been a pickle tasting. I'm just saying. Yep. Spent all the money on the fake kettle. I'm just kidding. Missed opportunities. The cheapest thing they had there. Oh my God. And then we saw the presidential gallery, which was completely unexpected and completely kismet. I did. I, I purposefully did not look up how the museum had changed since I was last there because I yes. wanted to be surprised. Luke watched me have basically like a stroke. <laughs> And this is over here, and this is over here, and you were there, and that was over there. Wow, it's over here. What are you now? Where's that book I loved? Yeah, it was very, it was an emotional day for me. But Luke got, got on his it. goddamn knees. I did. When I, he saw the fake Oval Office. I lost my mind. So there was like this this hallway where they, it's kind of like a throwaway space where it's like an in, in, in between liminal space. Yes. And it was a presidential timeline. And like, oh, political buttons. Oh, this, a picture of FDR. Interesting. And then Ooh, we all got. all the presidents on the wall. How cool. All the presidents on the wall. All the timeline. Oh my God, take a picture. And then we got to the recreation created Oval Office and I lost my shit. And <laughs> I, of course, you could sit at the desk. I sat at the 
desk. I made important phone calls. I spoke to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. I you let everybody got- know that you have been holding documents at your house. Correct. And- yeah. Please shred, shred, shred. Nancy, shred immediately. Shred. DEFCON 5. <laughs> Def, DEFCON 1. I think that's a bad one. Um, so we took. We had great time. I wish the whole office was open and we could like walk we around. and Sitting could, in the couches and yelling Right. You could, be, you could be RFK. I could be JFK. Like... <laughs> I could be Nixon. You'd be Kissinger. I could be Clinton. You could be Lewinsky. <laughs> I could be Har- you could be Harrison. I could be microbes. Um, <laughs> we could have had more fun if the exhibit was a little more open. Um, but I was thrilled to, to sit behind the desk. I think it was like supposed to be like Nixon or Johnson's desk because the phone was, it was the phone was super old. The it was phone, an old phone. The yes. phone was old. Everything was very bespoke. Was By it rotary? Time, I can't remember. No, but it was one of these like crazy like Pentagon phones where it's yeah, like a big yeah, yeah, gray yeah. box with like all yeah. these buttons and lights. And um, I didn't even that- look at the phone because I couldn't get over the jelly beans. <laughs> The jelly beans, right? That's what I thought it was Reagan. Because I think Reagan liked jelly beans. Right. Um, so the we'll big jar of jelly beans. Yeah. And of course, by that point, we're reading no labels because we are tired. <laughs> we are punched out. My eyes hurt. <laughs> yeah. We're just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just fighting off the bathroom urge. Like, was this yeah, over? We were hungry. Um, we had to we pee. We were hungry. We drink. <laughs> drink. Um, and yeah. And then they had the entire collection of Louis Marx figures, which I fell over. Fantastic. Can you explain for the kids at home sure. about your obsession? So, yeah, so in the 1960s, uh, there was a toy company by the name of the Marx Toy Company. Louis Marx was his name, and he had an office across from the Flatiron Building in Manhattan. And he was a toy maker, biggest toy maker in the country, one of them, and he had a series of presidential toys, little, like, three-and-a-half-inch models of each president, from Washington all the way through Kennedy and then Johnson and then Nixon. Nixon, the the toys are disgraced. They... <laughs> Nixon, Nixon, Nixon resigns, and there's no more presidential <laughs> figures made by Louis Marx. So there's no more Louis Marx toys. Then, about Sad. ten years ago, this other this guy who actually is a producer on The Simpsons and is just rolling in cash, a boomer, he decides I'm going to make all the other presidents that didn't get made by Louis Marx. So wild. So he gets up there. He makes a Gerald Ford. He makes a Jimmy Carter. He makes a Ronald Reagan. He makes a George Bush. He makes a Clinton. He makes a Bush. He makes Obama. He makes Trump. He's made all the Supreme Court justices. He's made Kamala Harris. I didn't know he made the justices. Apparently, he made all of the justices ever, ever? On, the, on the Supreme Court, like John Marshall, Justice Taney, Ju- Justice Frankfurter. Like, it's been like it's been like three hundred of them. <laughs> and I've <laughs> eBay is a dark, dark place. You should never be allowed to have extra income because <laughs> I stop at a president. I'm not collecting first ladies. I'm not collecting for us. So in the pandemic, no. I, I, in the pandemic, I started with just one president. I had a George Washington that I bought at a flea market years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I found, and I found the history of these pieces and I lost my shit and I proceeded to collect all of them, which, you know, didn't cost me that much, mom, but it's, it's the important thing is the serotonin that I receive when I look at my statuesque presidents I, on, the sh- on the shelf. And feeling good is important as we're getting through these trying times, these unprecedented times. We are reclaiming these times. We've, <laughs> we've reckoned with the tragedy and the trauma, and now we are reclaiming our happiness. Through tchotchkes. Through consumerism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Capitalism. Which I call these God damn it. In these tchotchkes are in my tchotchkes. entire personality. So yeah, that what a fun, what a fun little topic. That was our day. Yeah. So I'm so glad we got to delve into Salem a little bit. 
on our show here. And then, yeah, just kind of do a little commercial for NYHS because it is a beloved museum for me. It was a place where I really cut my teeth, learned a lot about the field, and it really is an extraordinary institution. I recommend it to anybody who's ever in New York. So I think that's it for today. Uh, Luke will be back with one more episode for January. And then we get into the best month of the year, which is February, a.k.a. Presidential <laughs> Month. That's right. Get ready, get guys. Ready, get ready for more presidential content coming your way. You are not morbid, ready. The Morbid Presidential Museum. I'm so excited. Yay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us at The Morbid Museum on Instagram and TikTok. Email us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Until next time, you'll hear us at another gallery talk inside The Morbid Museum. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.